If you brought your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screens, uh, on, the, on the big screen behind me. And, um, and, and we'll have all the text there that we're going to be reading through this morning. Uh, I want to, uh, I, know, I know we just prayed, but um, it's been like an interesting week and uh, a couple of weeks just... Um, you know, we've we've had a, like just kind of a lot a lot going on, uh, both you know with church and 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 the family and some different stuff. And so, um, and so I, I just wonder, could we? I know we literally just prayed, but I just I feel like I just want to pray just one more time, if you'll oblige. God, my prayer today is that I would get out of the way. My prayer today is that. This wouldn't be me. This would be you. As I stand up here and, and share your words, I feel like you've laid on my heart. I pray that they will, as they already have, first be preached to me. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Make me pure enough to be able to speak your truth to my friends in this room. Present yourself, God, in a way that is clear and understandable, and let us all leave here different. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sometimes I just got to pray for myself a little bit, if that's okay. So we're in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open to the second chapter, that's where we're going to be at, and that's what we're going to be talking through uh, this morning. We're, we're, we're not going to make it as, <laughs> as far as we need to. It's probably a, a shock to uh, some of you. Uh, we, this is our sixth week, and we, we just finally made it out of the first chapter. Uh, honestly, we could have stayed in the first chapter for many more weeks, but what we had to kind of Kind of had to push on because it is the summer scripture series, not the year-long scripture series. And so uh, we are trying to wrap up at some point toward the end of summer. And so, uh, so here's, here's where, if you're just joining us, we've been walking through this, this book of the Bible for many weeks now. And in, in fact, uh, this is a letter written by Paul to a church in the city of Colossium. And most of you might know that, that Paul was a missionary and, and a church planner. Uh, he traveled all over and he helped plant new and, and thriving churches in different communities. But this church, the one in Colossae that he's writing this, this letter to, is not one that he started. All right, it was actually started by a, nan, a man named Epaphras. And we talked about him on the very first day because that's who he's kind of uh, talking about at the beginning of this letter. And, and in fact, Paul had never even been to this church. He'd never met these people. But, but kind of here, if here's what happened, if this will, so, so Epaphras sends Paul a text message one day, right? And he's like, uh, oh, oh, hey, Paul, check this out. Well, this wasn't really a text message. It was basically a text message just without phone and internet and that kind of stuff. So he's like, hey, Paul, check, check this out. You, you wouldn't believe this, uh, but, man, I started this church, and the people here are lit. It's crazy. You, you won't believe it, right? And so Paul, being the, the, the good man he is, sends a text back and He's like, LOL. <clears throat> Good job with the church. Fire emoji, fire emoji. He, he, so he sends that back to him, right? So, so Paul says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send this letter to you. This, this is what we're going to send this letter, and I'm going to catch everybody up on what they should be doing at this point. I'm going to sort of come alongside you and remind 
all of the people there some of the things uh, that, that they need to know and help them make sense of this thing that we call Christianity, especially as it was really just then developing. And, and so uh, this is what he says. He, he says that, that at this time, it, there's a, it's a young and it's a new church and it's, it, it's bold and it's fresh and things are thriving, but it's also facing a lot of false teaching. And so Paul wants to head that off at the past and sort of get in front of it. And so in this letter, it's clear that Paul has a great love for Jesus and, and a great love for the saints, that is the, the church. And so he doesn't want to see false teachers coming in and spreading heresy that would, that would take people down the wrong path. And so Paul, uh, in, in this letter, and specifically in this chapter, uh, which we won't fully get to today, but, but specifically in this chapter, he's going to uh, go after the wolves that, that seek to harm the flock. This man's in prison. Paul's in prison, and he's hearing about these wolves that are coming in and trying to harm. That's like a pastor's nightmare. Like, he's gone. He's out. He, he's not there. He can't, he can't help. And there's these false teachers coming in, and, and they're spreading sort of like heresy, and they're spreading false teaching, and they're, they're, they're saying things that are just true enough to get your attention, but then they're going to lead you down the wrong path. And so Paul in this letter, he's, 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 he's trying to go after the wolves. He's trying to disarm the wolves. But the way he's going to do it, interestingly enough, is he's not going to break them down. Instead, he's going to disarm the false teachers by building up the church. And so the title of today's message, if you want to write it down, is, is Value Christ Above All. Now, up to this point, this is by far the most personal part of, of, this, of this letter um, that, that we've seen in, in, in the past six weeks of studying this. This is the most personal uh, part of the letter, and, and, and he's expressing his concern, and, he, and, and in doing so, he actually, Paul models for us what and how our hearts should feel about the church. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, we're going to just read a little bit and talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it. We're going to walk through uh, our text for today. So we're going to start in verse 1. We'll probably finish around verse 7 or so. Uh, so to, to go ahead and kick it off. For I want to know how great a struggle, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Well, Paul's right there. You see, Paul is going through a struggle for these Christians whom he has never seen but he loves. Never seen them, but he loves them. And that word struggle, we actually talked about this last week because this popped up in chapter 1, verse 29, this idea of, of struggle. And, and that word struggle, uh, actually, he, he says, you know, he says uh, he struggles and he toils to make known all the mystery of Christ in us. That's what he said in, in verse 29. And the word there that he uses is agon. It's the same word that we get our word agony from. It's the same word we get agony. The word was originally derived from the place where the Greeks assembled for their Olympic Games. It's a place where, where people agonize, athletes agonized uh, over wrestling and, and foot races and other just, just feats of strength. And they fought as hard as they possibly could to win to the point where their, their body was in agony. And the word indicates actually an opposing force. I mean, it's, it's almost like an athletic word. It's, a, it's you're going against something else. There's an opposing force, something else fighting against you that's helping cause that agony. So Paul is fighting in agony for the Colossians with everything that he had in him. He's laying it all down, trying to pray for and lift up and help the Colossians, even though he's never met them. I think it's interesting to note uh, the, the, next, the next line there. So, so he's, he's, he's in agony. He's, he's, he's struggling. He wants them to know the struggle, right? But he's also talking about the Laodiceans. 
he associates them with the Colossians. Now, this is the letter to the Colossians, and up to this point, all we've talked about is the church in Colossae. But now he brings in another city. He's bringing in somewhere else. And he speaks of people at both churches that have never seen his face. So let me just give you a little geography to kind of help you out with the mental image of the area Paul's talking about. So there are three towns, uh, essentially three cities in the Lycus Valley. So if you picture what does a valley look like, we'll just... We'll just say it's like, you know, mountain, mountain, valley, river, right? And so, so there's three towns there. You've got, uh, you've got <coughs> uh, Colossae, which is kind of up here. Uh, and then about nine miles downstream, you've got two other cities. All right, you've got the one that he's speaking of, Laodicea, and then you've got Heropolis. And, and they actually, those two stood in full view of each other. Uh, they're about four miles apart, just right across the river from one another. And, and so you've got those two right there, and you've got Colossi sort of up the road. Now, now, Laodicea was a wealthy center for trade and commerce, but it may sound familiar to you. You may actually think, wow, that, that, that city sounds a little familiar if you've read the book of Revelation. Uh, you might even remember that Christ is going to criticize the believers there uh, for their lukewarm commitment. He even talks about spitting them out uh, of his mouth. And so that's, that's the church that he's talking about there in Laodicea, uh, which is, again, just about nine miles away from Colossae. And so the idea is, is that these, these churches, these Christians that are in all three of these cities are probably working together. All right, they probably know each other. They probably know what's going on in each other's congregations. They, they, I mean, they're, they're really close, and so they're, they're probably working together. And so Paul most likely wanted this letter to be passed on to, to the Laodicean church. Um, but, and, and, and that idea indicates that there's probably false teaching there as well. All right, this isn't something that's isolated to just one church. This is something that's, that's kind of spread around, and it's something that other people are getting. And so... And so it's the group of Christians in this area of three towns that Paul is really agonizing over and he's praying for and writing instruction to. And, and, and Paul is, is calling and challenging these churches to just to be faithful to God. He wants them to be faithful. <clears throat> I think one of the most remarkable things to me about this entire letter to this church, the, the whole book, the whole letter, everything that we've studied and will study, is the fact that Paul had never seen them. They, they never met. They didn't go to school together. They didn't see each other at the coffee shop. They, they never went to brunch. They essentially don't know each other. They, 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 don't, they have no idea. Yet, Paul is sitting in a jail cell. Maybe house arrest, depending on where he's at at the time. But he's, 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 he's arrested. He is, this, this, is a, this is a prison letter. And, and he is on his face in prayer for these people. He's interceding for them all of the time. He's asking God to move in their lives, and he's taking the time to encourage and teach them. These people that he doesn't even know. These people that have never seen him face to face, the word says. You know what that tells me? We are pathetic. All right, that hit just about like I thought it would. Let me clarify that statement. First, I know that that is not the statement that builds churches. People generally don't like being called pathetic. I get it. Second, I am lumping myself into that category, which is why I said we are pathetic. And third, I just want to reiterate my very first point, which is we are kind of pathetic. 
Paul is in prison. He's never met these people, but he, he, is, he is exhausting himself in prayer on their behalf. When was the last time that you did that for someone you knew, much less a perfect stranger? When was the last time you agonized over the strife and the hardship of someone that sits two rows in front of you, much less a random person you've never even met? Church, we need to do better. We need to love better. One of our core values here is to love unreasonably, and that is what Paul is doing. That's what Jesus did. Is that what your life looks like? Is that what my life looks like? It's the question I've been asking myself this week. So Paul is struggling, and, and he's praying and, and, and what's, what's he praying? He's praying, let's go ahead and verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> a few things here. Let's start with the prayer that Paul is praying for the people. It's a good alliteration. We establish that he is spending time in prayer for them. He's interceding on their behalf. He's going to the Lord for them. But what was the prayer? What exactly was he praying? We see it right here, uh, a couple of things. The first thing is that, that they would be encouraged in Christ. Their hearts would be encouraged <clears throat> in Christ. That, that nothing would lift their eyes except for the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, who is the hope of glory. That they would be encouraged in their faith. All right, he's praying that. He's praying that out. He wants to encourage them. He also prays that their hearts would be knit together in love. That, that they would know that we are Christians, right, by the love for one another and also our love for those in the world. He's praying that they would be knit together in love. That they would show love to one another. That there would be unity with one another. He's probably talking a little bit to the three churches in those areas. Uh, and he wants them to be unified together. They're going against a common enemy. They've got, they've got people, false teachers coming in, throwing, uh, trying to poke holes in their, in their faith. And they want, he wants them to be unified together so that they can face the attack that's coming their way. He wants, he wants them to know the hope of glory. Here's the, here's the third thing that he prays. He, he, he prays that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. I love the way Paul writes sometimes. It, it doesn't read smoothly, but it speaks powerfully. He says, he says uh, I'll reach all the riches of full assurance because how sweet it is for my soul to know to be fully assured that Christ is the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. He says that I pray that, that you'll have the understanding. That is the hope of glory. I love that. What amazing prayers that he prays over these people that he didn't even know. So in preparation for, for, for this message this week, I spent some time praying these things over you. I spent some time praying these things over, over each of you. As I discovered these principles, I said, I want to pray these things. And, 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 and so I pray, God, would you just strengthen and encourage their hearts. God, would you please help them to be knit together in love. Would you, would you help them to be unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. And God, please help us explore the depths of of your grace, that we may know the hope of your glory. That should be our prayer for one another. 
In fact, I know we already had our prayer time for the day. We've already prayed a good bit today. But I want to pause for one more. I don't think God would mind us praying again, do you? Now, I know we prayed earlier for each other's prayer requests. And, and, and that, that whole prayer time was sort of by design. I mean, they're all by design, but, but that was specifically because I knew that we we're going to be talking about this in our message today. And, and so uh, we found out specific ways that we could pray for one another, even if we didn't know who we were specifically praying for. And, and so that, that prayer time, it wasn't by random or accident. I think God wanted me to show you that you can pray for somebody without even knowing who it is. You can pray over a request without even knowing the details, and you can pray in confidence that God hears and will respond to that accordingly. But I feel impressed right now by the Lord to take this a step further. And I want us to take a moment. There's no music. There, there's no extras. Just you and God to pray these things over our church. To pray these things over, over the people that are, that are here right now. And then to take a moment and pray these things over another church in our community, another body of believers. We're talking about being knit together. We're talking about being unified. I know sometimes we put a list up there and we just have you pray, pray for different churches. Well, just yeah, there's a bunch to choose from, so just pick a church and, and pray these things over them. You might not know anybody in that church. You might not know a single person. You might not know a single staff member, a pastor, or anything, but, but pray over that church the way that Paul prayed over the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. He laid it all out for them. He, he prayed to the point of agony. I want us to do what Paul did. We don't have to have a request to pray for somebody. We don't have to have a, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, pray, I'll pray for you because you said you have this thing, but, but maybe we can just pray anyways. Why? Because we need people outside of ourselves, our, our, our family and our circle praying for us. We need the body of Christ to be the body of Christ to strengthen one another even when we don't even know what's happening. And so let's do this now. Let's use this, this prayer, this prayer of Paul uh, for the church at Colossae and Laodicea as a template if you need to, and spend just a few moments in prayer. Pray in your heart, pray aloud, uh, pray with someone else, whatever you feel like comfortable doing. But let's spend a few moments just right now doing what Paul did. Let's pray for people, even people we don't even know. And let's pray, let's pray some of these things. So go ahead and take that time and pray now.
We make that a practice more often. I'm just, I think it's great to pray for family, your circle, your church. But as believers, we need to get beyond that. As believers, we need to, to do what Paul did. We need to go outside of that because we need people outside of that praying for us. Praying for our strength. Praying for our encouragement. I think it's safe to say that everyone in here would agree with the following statement. To get better at something, to, to better understand something, it helps tremendously to have a better knowledge of that thing, right? You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to grasp this idea that increased knowledge leads to better understanding. And, and if you have uh, been a believer for any length of time, you know that increased knowledge and focus on Christ leads to spiritual well-being. What you think of Christ, your conception of him is everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is eternal, without beginning and without end, that he is always, uh, he, he always was continuing, if you believe that he is creator uh, of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space, uh, the creator of the textures and the colors and the shapes that, that, that dazzle our eyes, uh, if you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force that is currently holding the atoms of your body, of of our, of our city, of the universe together, and that without him all would dissolve. If you believe that he is the mystery, the incarnate reconciler who will one day reconcile the universe and redeem Christianity or redeem, redeem humanity back to himself, if you believe that he is the lover of your soul who loves you with a love bounded only by his infinitude, then despite the fact that life will be full of trouble, nothing much can actually go wrong. Why? Because you're tapping into the treasures of true and priceless wisdom and knowledge. What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world now and in eternity. So, so how does this knowledge of Christ come? Where can I get some? Where do I pick up a good old bag of knowledge? It comes through in, 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 in one way, in, in one way it comes through in brotherly love within the church. All right, I want to go back to verse 2 for just a second. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. In other words, the, the depth of understanding is facilitated when believers' hearts are bound together in love. This means that pure and basic comprehension of the mystery of Christ, no, no matter how thorough and how deep it might be, that alone will not bring understanding of the mystery of Christ. Because understanding also comes through the love of Christians for one another. How does this work? Well, when we're loved by others, we experience Christ through them. And with that, our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. If we love, there are riches of full assurance and understanding. This is why Paul wants them to be knit together. He knows that they need each other. They, that, that they, they need to see Christ in each other and to be Christ to each other so that they will grow in their knowledge and understanding. This is another reason why church is so important. A complete understanding of the mystery comes in a loving community of believers. Goes on in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We talked about that last week from uh, at the end of chapter one. That that mystery is 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 simply for for those. Th this mystery is that is for those who know and love Jesus. It's 
It's Christ in us. The mystery was Christ in the Gentiles. No special revelation needed here. Uh, Christ is for all that would accept his gift of salvation. Mystery solved. Christ in us. This was also kind of a a jab at the Gnostics. I I talked about the first uh, week or so. This is kind of what they were dealing with was this idea of Gnosticism. And this was sort of of a jab at the Gnostics. We uh, we talked about them. They were were spreading this false teaching such as downplaying the deity of Christ. And they claimed to have uh, the way to all knowledge and wisdom. So Paul is is definitively telling telling them that all of the treasures, he says, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's kind of jabbing a little bit there, like you have none of the wisdoms of treasure and knowledge, and they all come from Jesus Christ. So they tried to deceive a little bit, and Paul's sort of fighting back with the truth. So let me try and steer this thing home. I told you at the beginning of the series that there's going to be some days where there are points, uh, and there's kind of like a, a flow, and there's other days where it might be key thoughts, uh, and, and still others, it might just be text. Today I feel like we kind of like got on a bus that just drove around and made some random stops. And that's not a bad thing, but I know that probably drives many of you note takers a little crazy. Um, and so let's actually talk about just a few ideas here real quick as we read our last few verses and begin to wrap up. I want these last things to sort of drive home the why behind Christ, behind Paul's uh, first few statements that we've already looked at. So in verses 4 and 5, uh, after explaining that Christ was the hope of wisdom and knowledge, he, he, he makes all things known. He says this in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's making it clear to them that, uh, that they are to hold on to this full assurance, this knowledge of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption. They are to value him above all. All things so that they will not be easily swayed. Again, he's warning against being easily swayed or deceived by the false teachers. Specifically, again, the Gnostics. Here's something that you can write down from this passage if you want to take down a note or a point. Uh, Knowing the person of Christ and the power of the gospel is the believer's best protection against deception. He's saying if you know Christ, if you know the gospel, you will not be easily deceived. He's saying that, that I want you to value this mystery, the mystery of Christ being made known to you. And if you value it, then you will be able to withstand plausible arguments or all other sorts of distractions. Paul didn't want them to be swayed by smooth words or convincing arguments. He wanted them to be, be presented complete in Christ, deeply rooted in a firm foundation. The thing is, at least with the Gnostics that Paul is combating, the philosophy sounded good. I mean, it was, it was plausible. Doesn't that sound like other things that you hear in the world today, though? There are so many talking heads and Internet philosophers and cultural influencers that present things that honestly sound plausible. It sounds kind of good. They make a good case. They present a decent argument as to why this should be this way or why this doctrine is antiquated or or how this this didn't really mean that. Paul is telling you don't be easily swayed. Christ, being the exact imprint of God we learn in Acts chapter 17, embodies all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We, we, We experience and express Jesus Christ's supremacy when we value him above all things. 1 Corinthians 1, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Uh, He says, uh, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness 
of your faith in Christ. Here's another thing you can write down. Jesus cannot be ignored and adored. He cannot be ignored and adored. Let me ask you a question and be honest. Do you adore Jesus Christ in some spaces of your life and ignore him in others? I know that there has to be some space where you adore him. I mean, you're here this morning. You, you sang with us. You, you know, you're, you're, you're here and you've been a part of the corporate worship. But, but is there a space in your life where you ignore Christ altogether? Maybe your job, you don't think about him when he's standing right there trying to give you some wisdom and knowledge. Maybe in your parenting, you're not tapping into who he is. Maybe in your marriage, you're not paying attention to him. You're not giving him the voice that he's owed. I want you to listen to me, church. You cannot ignore him and adore him. If you adore him, then he will be supreme over that area of your life. Because he's saying, let me be supreme over all of your life. Don't let there be spaces where I'm ignored. But instead, adore me, worship me, live for me, lay down your life for me, and realign all of your priorities with me. You, you cannot both ignore and adore Christ. I said this before that often for many of us, it's the, it's the, it's the good things that he's given us that nudges Christ aside. The, the family members to love, the, the great job that provides, the friends to spend time with. But, but, but church, there should be nothing in this life that we value more than Christ. I pray that we would want to be free from the distractions uh, that intentionally or accidentally replace Christ in our lives. You fix this by valuing Christ more. What is replacing Christ in your life? No matter what it is, church, it's weak. Nothing compares and nothing completes except for Christ. If you're ignoring Jesus Christ, then you adore something else. Plain and simple. So take a moment today or this week to evaluate and realign. Also, these are, these are two military words that's actually used here uh, to challenge the Colossians. Good order and firmness. The imagery is like troops called up and ready for battle, standing firm and resisting the enemy. So let me challenge you. Resist the enemy even when the enemy is your own sinful hearts and desires. So in order to do any of this, we must have a firm foundation. We must be deeply rooted. In order to resist plausible arguments away from the truth, we have to have the truth to stand on. In order to push away all distractions that take away from the supremacy of Christ in our lives, we have to be on a firm foundation. So let me give you the last point, and then we'll read the last verse. To walk in him requires growing roots and a firm foundation. To walk in him requires growing roots in a firm foundation foundation. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. These are our last ones for this morning, and then we'll sing, and then we'll be let go. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to think about that idea for a moment, to walk in him. Walking is really just one step away from falling. That's why venturing out on two, like, unstable, shaky legs for, for a toddler is such a scary experience. Right? It's frightening. But they keep at it until walking becomes second nature. I feel like this is similar to learning to walk as a Christian. We put our faith into practice one step at a time. And it might not be right away, but over time, as we continue to live by faith, we would become firmly established in our walk with Christ. Scripture portrays the Christian life as a process of growth in which we advance from one stage to the next. From, from spiritual infancy 
to maturity, from milk to strong meat, from being rooted in Christ to being firmly established. Like a toddler, we have to take it one step at a time. That's how spiritual growth occurs. We do that by focusing our thoughts on him, what he has done, what he is doing now, and what he will do for us. We depend completely on him, value him above all else, obey his commands, and put his teaching into practice. Our call is to be faithful, established, rooted, and built up in him. With him, it's our firm foundation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then, then, then you have a foundation that will be swept away when suffering comes. You have a foundation that will be knocked out from under you. Matthew chapter 7 talks about the rock that we're supposed to build our life on and the, the sand that, that some other people choose to build their life on. Jesus is saying, build your life on the rock, solid and established, not on sand or plausible arguments or distractions. You see, giving your life to Christ begins at salvation, but it's a continual submission to his leadership. This results in being established in faith, rooted and built up. I want to give you this last thing. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you, you may, have, may have heard of him. He's a pretty famous author long gone now, but he wrote a book called A Joyful Christian. And he said that we see three reactions to Christ in the Gospels. There's only three reactions to Christ in all of the Gospels. People either hated him, they reacted with hatred, they reacted with terror, or they reacted with adoration. He says this, there is no trace of people expressing mild approval. So do you adore him There's no room for mild approval. There's no room for him to be beside somebody else or behind somebody else in your life. He has one place, and it's to be valued above all else. And so let's commit to doing that this morning. Let's commit to doing that this week. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and worship. If you need to respond, I'll kind of be in the middle section here uh, and would love to talk. But there's also a care room, like, right outside these doors. There's some people in there that would love to talk and pray with you. Uh, but let me, let me pray over us right now. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Paul, who wrote these words. We thank you uh, that we get to read them. We get to learn from them. We get to grow from them. And God, I pray right now over each and every person in this theater this morning that we, uh, that we would commit right here, right now, to valuing you above all things. That, that if, we need to, if we need to take a look at our lives, if we need to reprioritize, if we need to evaluate and realign some things, that we would do that either here this morning or, or, or this week, God, that we would change it so that you are at the forefront of everything. You're not at the beginning of salvation, God. You are there each and every day. Reminding us of your grace and your mercy. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray.